I'm George Hayward. In May 1969, two American prisoners of war escaped from a brutal North Vietnamese prison camp. Their story is one of incredible bravery against the longest of odds. It's also one of bitter conflict. John Dramisi and Ed Atterbury escaped with help from their fellow prisoners, but that help was not given freely. The suffering it caused killed one man and brought many others lifetimes of pain. I first heard the story of an escape codenamed The Party from Bill Baugh in 1990, soon after I went to work for him in the public affairs office at what was then called Falcon Air Force Station, several miles east of Colorado Springs. I was a young E-4 sergeant, 25 years old. My knowledge of the Vietnam War was childhood memories of Walter Cronkite narrating war and protest footage, updated in the 1980s by movies like Platoon, Full Metal Jacket, and Apocalypse Now. I'd heard that more than 50,000 Americans were killed in a bloody jungle war, and that many who came home struggled emotionally, like Rambo. I knew not much else, and some I knew nothing. Bill Baugh did not hire me, per se. I was assigned to him. He was a civil servant, chief of public affairs at the tiny military base. I was the new writer-slash-photographer-slash-editor of the base's twice-monthly newspaper, and he was my direct supervisor. Most people at Falcon knew Bill's background. He was a retired Air Force colonel and fighter pilot who spent more than six years as a prisoner of war in Vietnam. Despite the suffering he endured and the injuries that still nagged him, his ability to relate the story of his captivity with eloquence and humor made him a frequent speaker at military and civic events. His story included the tale of the escape because he was there in room six of the zoo annex with John Dramisi and Ed Atterbury as events took shape and went down. Bill's rank and experiences commanded respect, even from a cocky twerp like me. Few people awe me, then or now, but he did. I quickly came to call him boss, and with great affection. He was cool, literally and figuratively. He was a fighter pilot with a resume that would make Rambo bow, yet he was one of the most relaxed, approachable, and warm-hearted people I'd met in my brief life. I began going out of my way to catch some of his speaking engagements, and I loved sitting with him in his office late in the workday or work week while he told funny stories or reflected on life. He retired from civil service in 1991, barely a year after I went to work for him. Over the next four years, before the Air Force shipped me to Alaska in 1995, I visited him many times. We'd talk about life, his and mine, and I always departed his presence more grounded and happier than I had arrived. Bill wanted to tell his story to more than local audiences. As many Vietnam POWs had done, he wanted to write a book about his life and time in prison. I was a young wannabe writer, awed by him and his experience, so I volunteered to help him. He shared a few notes with me, but mostly we talked. The story of the escape fascinated me, both for its heroism and its moral ambiguity. So throughout our times together, the party was a frequent topic. Bill also introduced me to Mike McGrath, another former POW who lived minutes away and was then president of their national brotherhood, NAMPOWs. Mike had been party to the party too. 
He was at the zoo annex, in room 5, next to Baudramisi and Atterbury's cell. His cellmates included Conrad Connie Troutman, the senior ranking officer, or SRO, among the camp's POWs, who played a pivotal role in the party saga. Mike was able to offer perspectives that Bill could not. I spent hours with them, taking notes as they talked, but the project never really went anywhere from there. I was too immature to properly approach such a serious topic, and I think Bill realized that long before I did. In 1998, I received my dream assignment in the Air Force, staff writer for Airman Magazine, the service's flagship publication. Based in San Antonio, Texas, I traveled around the country and world in pursuit of feature stories that portrayed Air Force people, places, and operations in a positive light. We weren't censored propagandists, we were sometimes assigned stories, but we were never told what to write, and we had vast freedom to develop our own stories, which is called enterprise reporting in news media. I sold the editor on a feature story, about 1,500 words, about a little-known episode from the Vietnam War, one of incredible bravery and detailed planning, of collaboration and conflict that ended tragically in the death of an American airman. The story could not be produced in the typical airman magazine story cycle. Normally, an airman writer, there were three of us on staff, and a photojournalist would go on assignment to a faraway place for a week or two, and upon returning, spend the next couple weeks writing two to five stories from that trip while also planning our next trip. The untitled story of the party could not be created this way. While most of the POWs involved were still alive, they were spread across the country. Flying to each of them for interviews was not practical. And John Dramisi was considered a black sheep by Nampows. He does not pay dues and does not attend events, Mike McGrath succinctly told me at the time. Finding Dramisi and securing an interview with him were essential to the story. But we did find him, living quietly on a farm in rural Pennsylvania. After a few letters and phone calls, he agreed to let me and a photojournalist visit him at his home for an afternoon in spring 1999. I was also able to formally interview Bill Baugh and Mike McGrath in Colorado and Connie Troutman in North Texas. But that was as far as the story got. It was too complex and conflicted a story to tell in 1,500 words. My editor decided not to publish it. And in September 1999, I left the Air Force when my contract was up at the end of my third enlistment. That spawned my first attempt at this book, a docudrama version of the story. Through the first two years of a civilian career in public relations, I continued to interview POWs and slowly assemble the pieces into a storyline. With the support of the NAMPOWs I'd previously interviewed, I interviewed all of the living room six cellmates, mostly by phone, some more than once, between 1999 and 2001. Each told the story of the party from his perspective, and I was allowed to record the interviews on microcassette. However, I was still missing the most important perspective, Ed Atterbury's. Spoiler alert, he did not survive the party. There were no interviews. In fact, I knew less about Ed Atterbury than anyone else involved in the party. Only Dramisi knew him more than a little. By all accounts, he was a quiet guy, not one to engage in long conversations. And once he and Dramisi began serious escape planning, he interacted with the rest of his cellmates even less. In 2001, I found and made contact with Atterbury's widow, Thalia. 
We spoke by phone once for a few minutes. She offered little insight about Ed and said talking about him was painful. She never responded to future attempts to contact her, so I've respected her privacy then and now. Wherever possible in my first attempt docudrama, I presented scenes and dialogue as the participants remembered them. But many holes remained in the factual or remembered narrative, especially regarding Atterbury, so I created many scenes and dialogue to fill the gaps in a dramatic retelling. However, by 2002, the story was stalled, caught between fact, fiction, and conflicting recollections of the participants. It stayed stalled for 15 years as my life evolved to include a return to Colorado, a family, and other priorities, including laziness and a recurring fear. The story's moral ambiguities always fascinated me, from Bill Ma's earliest retellings. They also intimidated me, how to write such ethical conflicts into dialogue that I was attributing to aging men who remembered only parts of the story. The story was always bigger than me, so the docudrama idled for more than a decade. Nonetheless, the three ring binders containing my working draft and files sat on or near my desk that entire time, never fully out of sight. I kept in touch with Bill over those years, never as often as I should have, but his spirit in that cool in every way aura I felt from him never waned. One of his adages was, there is no such thing as a bad day. He used to say it to me with a shrug and a laugh in response to my petty complaints, conflicts, and melodramas of my 20-something life. It humbled me every time. As I matured, those words became gospel to me and my outlook on life. Not one day in my life can compare to the mental and physical torture the men of this story and hundreds of others suffered for years. Colonel William J. Baugh passed in February 2010. His words continue to guide me, and I speak of him often. I told him many times that I would tell this story, and I wish he were here with us to see it done, because I am finally brave enough to do so. In this book, I try to capture not only the events of the party, but also the moral dilemma and emotional spectrum of the men involved, without the docudrama. Over about two dozen hours of interviews, I heard the range of human strength and frailty. I saw former fighter pilots, those daring American combat heroes, sob at decades-old memories of the tortures they suffered. I listened as they criticized the actions of cellmates, as well as themselves. I offer here what they told me and what I learned from them, not as indictments against their fellows in this tale, but as evidence that every man will deal with pain, suffering, fear, and hopelessness in different ways. You might perceive their words and actions as strong or weak, right or wrong, generous or selfish, but you will do so based upon your own perceptions as this story unfolds, just as they did while they lived it. When I used to visit Bill Baugh, Ed Atterbury's name hung on a wall in his home office. It was a framed rubbing from Ed's place on the Vietnam Wall. Neither large nor colorful, it was nestled among a collection of POW photos and other memorabilia. Yet somehow it stood out and caught your eye. It was a stark reminder of one man's death. I think it was the medium. Charcoal. Black and white. Like the story, there was a lot of gray. Regardless of how these men are portrayed in this story, in either individual scenes or throughout, I do not judge nor look down upon their actions. They survived something I fear would have killed me, 
if not physically, then certainly psychologically and emotionally. They're all heroes. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll join us for the podcast. And read the book. It's got more pictures than the podcast. Cheers. Mm-hmm.